Hi, and welcome to the Vine Missions Podcast, a short series exploring the topic of child development, the role of fostering adoption, and how the Christian faith calls us to care for the children in our community. Over these sessions, we're sitting down with a number of special guests to hear about their experiences in caring for the vulnerable children in Hong Kong and how we can play an active role in helping children grow in a flourishing environment. My name is Nathan Thalista, the missions pastor here at The Vine. And I'm Michelle Wong, the missions associate. In this four-part series, we're sharing a number of conversations with adoptive parents and leaders of incredible organizations who have been caring for some of the most vulnerable children in our city. This week, we're joined by Andrew and Christine Gardiner. Andrew is the senior pastor of the Vine Church in Hong Kong, and Christine is a counselor and senior partner at OASIS, the Hong Kong Center for Counseling and Psychotherapy. Andrew and Chris are joining us to share their adoptive journey as well as unpack God's heart for families and children and its connection to our faith. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Hi. It's such a pleasure to have you in and kick off this podcast series where we're really starting to look into some of these uh, missional issues, particularly on childhood development uh, and the role that fostering and adoption can play in that space. Uh, so today we wanted to look into this issue a little bit more from the perspective of Scripture. You know, when we consider things like childhood development, when we consider things like missions and what our response should be, you know, how do scripture shape um, you know, how we see the identity of value of children? And what is the biblical perspective of children, essentially? I mean, it's a great question. There's so much in scripture, actually, about children. It's going to be impossible to summarize it. Um, but I think, uh, let me maybe just pull out what I would say are some of the key fundamentals that I think first the Old Testament provides, and then I think the New Testament kind of clarifies um, I, I think when, when you're approaching what Scripture says about children, you've got to start um, in the central redemptive narrative of Scripture, uh, which in the Old Testament is the Exodus. And really so much of what we see about um, Israel's formation as well as how Christ then comes and is the fulfillment of that is through the Exodus narrative. And, and what the Exodus narrative essentially shows us is it's the very first time in Scripture that God represents himself as a father to Israel. Um, I think it's in Exodus 4, verses 22 to 23, where, where God actually, for the first time, says, you know, um, he says th- through Moses to Pharaoh, let my people go. But he actually says, I am the father of this nation and Israel is my son. Um, and uh, it's a significant turning point in our scriptures because it begins to form for us that God sees himself as a father and sees us as his children. And so when it comes for us thinking about what do we do in terms of how do we shape our thinking theologically with children, um, this is our starting point. God sees us as his children. He is the father. And the Exodus narrative is all about the idea of God saying, as a father, I am not happy with what I'm seeing happening to my child. I'm seeing slavery. I'm seeing oppression. uh, I'm seeing suffering. I have compassion. This is uh, Exodus chapter 2. I've got compassion on you. I'm going to come. I'm going to come down. I'm going to release you from that oppression. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to value you. I'm going to reveal myself to you. I'm going to draw you out of that place of slavery and oppression into a place of freedom. And from that place of freedom, you'll then be free to worship me. In other words, you'll be free to be in a relationship of health, a relationship of protection, of security, of flourishing with me, your father. Um, And so I think that Old Testament picture of God declaring himself as a father, having compassion on the children who are oppressed, begins to formulate for us how we think about how we as Christians should act towards children, uh, whether they're children in our families or whether they're children um, that are uh, outside of our sphere of influence or families um, who are in a place of struggle, trial, oppression, and even slavery. 
Um, and this obviously drives a lot of why the vine is involved in this kind of work. Um, and I think if you take that original framework of the Exodus narrative and you shift it towards the New Testament, uh, what you see there is Jesus basically saying, um, I am the one who's come to be able to show you what the kingdom of God actually looks like. And the kingdom of God, when, when Jesus is trying to explain to the crowds and to Israel what the kingdom of God is about, he uses children as the model and as the example. So he says, uh, where, where, where those disciples are stopping the children coming to him uh, in Mark chapter 10, he reverses that and says, no, children need to come to me. And in fact, not just that, not only are children welcomed into my presence, but they also model for us how we are to receive the kingdom. We're to receive it like these children. So we see in Jesus this idea that, first of all, children are not second-class citizens when it comes to the kingdom. And so often we treat children like second-class, uh, you know, in, in multiple different ways. They're not second-class to the kingdom. And secondly, they are actually a model to us of what it is for us to receive the kingdom. If we receive it like a child, uh, we will be able to enter into it and flourish in it. So in the Old Testament, you have this idea of God having compassion on children and wanting to release them and secure them. And in the New Testament, you have Jesus saying the kingdom is for such as these, um, and these are to model what receiving the kingdom is all about. So I think when it comes to thinking theologically about why do we care for children, why do we try to protect them, why are we, what identity and value do we see in them, it derives from, from, from the Exodus narrative and from Christ and his interaction with them. And they, it basically says to us that children are valued highly in his eyes. Uh, and because he values them so highly, we therefore, in our turn, should uh, walk that out in our relationship with our children. That was really good, Andre. I think you answered the question of how do we view children, but also how do we as believers represent God's heart in caring for children around us. So maybe would you like to, or Christine, Andrew, would you like to speak a little bit about what it actually means to protect and nurture children? I think picking up on something Andrew said, which is kind of foundationally important, I think, is seeing children as um, individuals, the same as an adult. So a child, you know, there's families and corporate and we all want to be in relationship with each other, but fundamentally we are individuals that have to work out our own relationship with God and how to relate to this world as an individual. And if we see children that way, we are able to see them not as possessions, but as individuals who are learning, growing, and developing into healthy, functioning, independent adults. Obviously, to take a role in society, but we're raising children to be healthy, functioning individuals who can make choices and take responsibility, who have freedom, kind of like, you know, in Genesis, God models this to us. He... he he put two trees in the garden and said, we have a choice. Um, so he respected each of us as individuals that we can make a choice. We're free to make a choice. Um, obviously, that does mean that sometimes, you know, make choices that are unhelpful for themselves and are unhelpful for us. As parents, our responsibility is to nurture, develop, grow, but grow in a safe framework that is not nurturing dependency, is nurturing individuality and chosen interdependency. 
Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because, I mean, this is both obviously, you know, part of what you guys do on a day-to-day in a professional area of working in a church or leading a church and then also working with, you know, children and families um, in a counseling capacity. The interesting is that you're also both adoptive parents. So you've seen this play out in how you've parented. So share maybe a little bit of that experience. What does this look like for you uh, both as you've kind of like approached this journey of parenting and adoption? Um, and seeing you know how God's heart and your understanding for this is really yeah played out for you. It's been our probably the the greatest thing that Chris and I have ever had to do, uh, and had the privilege of doing raising Mia. Um, and I feel like in the adoption context, it, you know, I'm sure every parent feels this way, <laughs> um, even in uh, normal um, you know natural childbirth. But when it's adoption and you're building a family that way, um, we really felt very strongly that it was like God handpicked this particular child for us, um, and and so. Everything I, I said earlier about the Exodus narrative and God saying, like, I have compassion. I want to be here. Uh, I'm, I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to protect you from um, the injustice that's happened to you. I think as, a, as a, an adoptive father, when I first met Mia, that was what was, I, it was almost like I was in that position of God saying, I've got compassion here. And I get this great privilege of taking this child out of a very, you know, hard situation and bringing her into a new situation. Um, and so with that comes a lot of excitement, also a lot of responsibility. Um, but I think that joy in my heart to say, um, wow, as an adoptive father, um, I've really, um, you know, I can really walk out much of what I see in scripture, uh, around what it is to care and nurture for children. And of course, everybody can do that. You don't just have to be adopted, adoptive father to do that. But I think as adoptive parents, there's that extra element uh, of, you know, we're getting to care for something that is a true gift to us. And we've been able to fight, you know, to take that child out of a very hard situation into what we hope <laughs> has been a flourishing situation in our family. And so um, there's a great sense of joy and privilege and responsibility that's come with that. Thinking about, you know, what I was just talking about with the balance between um, nurturing nurturing a person, you know, who is a child but still a person, to be a healthy, uh, functioning individual in, in society. Um, I think within a, with a child who has been adopted, I've noticed that I have to pay extra attention to what individuality means, being an individual, and what being connected to a family is. I've noticed that for our child particularly, and I don't know if this is, for other adoptive parents maybe have noticed, because of her history, she can sometimes have a tendency to be too individual. Like she really can isolate herself, very independent. Um, Like I have to look after myself because there's no one else to look after me. Kind of unconscious motivation of I'm on my own. So I have to be really aware to to really nurture that you're part of a family unconditionally loved and connected to us and in in that really emphasize a healthy role people's roles in a family like mum and dad we are mum and dad and part of being a mum and dad your mum and dad is to protect you make decisions and you can trust us because that is who we are that's our role you don't have to be mum and dad to us you don't have to be protecting yourself or worrying about how to keep yourself safe because that's our job. 
you know, so so really emphasising a healthy balance between individual and connection and family. I think one of the things that, uh, just picking up on what Chris just said, one thing I've noticed with Mia, which has been really a fascinating journey for us, is um, we had to teach her how to um, co-regulate. Um, so when, when Mia um, is upset, um, her natural tendency is to self-regulate because the institutional environment that she grew up in, um, there was no co-regulation. So, so if, if you hurt yourself in that environment, you cry and cry and cry, and you may or may not get picked up. So she learned from a very early age, um, okay, if I cry, no one's going to come and comfort me, so I need to comfort myself. Mm-hmm. So even now, and she's 10 years old now, even now she still has a tendency to default to self-regulation. So if she's upset or she hurts herself, she will remove herself from us. She will go into her bedroom. She'll get into her closet or, or she'll go to a, a quiet, dark place, and she'll sit there and she'll shut the world out. And that's her way of becoming okay again. Um, so we've been spending quite a bit of time in the last few years, like helping her to, 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 to co-regulate with us. You know, actually when you're upset, you need to come to mom and dad and, and hold us. And we want to hold you. We want to help you to comfort yourself. You don't need to comfort yourself on your own anymore. So there's things like that, that I think have been a, an, an interesting part of her journey. I think one other thing quickly is just identity. You know, um, one of the beautiful things about the adoption journey is that you can celebrate the diversity of identity. So her identity is not just mm. as um, the child of Andrew and Chris. Her identity is that she she is the child of another uh, two people in this world. Um, she has two sets, if you will, of people that input into her identity. So the whole nature nurture thing comes very interesting when it comes to the adoption journey, um, because um, it's not just about nature or nurture. It's both of those combined across two different very groups of people. Um, and so from a very early age, you know, we've celebrated her diversity of identity. You know, this is amazing. You know, she, she's half Nepalese, half Indonesian. Uh, Chris is from New Zealand. I'm from the UK. Uh, and she was born in Hong Kong. So she, she to this day, she's like, I'm from six people, you know, six places, you know. And she names all these countries. And that's a celebration for her of her diversity. Like, isn't it amazing that my identity is made up from all of this? And I think um, that's been a fun thing. Uh, and uh, yeah, there's challenges to that at time in school when they're talking about fi- family and they often don't necessarily think about, you know, adoptive families, although Mia's school's actually been particularly good at that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's been a wonderful thing to celebrate with her, her diversity of her identity. Yeah. I think along with that is just having real open communication, you know, because we model to her I mean, for, she loves being from the, all these different countries and and she, she knows that she's got um, biological family as well and it's very open. But we're, we're in a position to, to model to her that that's okay in our language. So real open communication. She can ask us questions and they're always good questions. We're modelling... This is a place which is safe to talk about stuff. Mum and dad aren't going to be phased by this. It's okay. And we celebrate it too, you know. And kids are so sensitive, right? She definitely, she picks up when we feel uncomfortable about anything. And she'll, you know, she'll close down. So so Mm. modelling that open communication and that this is a celebration and and it's a positive thing. One, one last thing I would say. We could talk for hours about Mia, trust us. Uh, 
but one other thing that I think has been really a beautiful part of the journey is, um, and this is credit to Chris because I, I wouldn't have thought this way, but but Chris was like, she needs to be able to tell her story in her time. Um, so we've been very conscious that we haven't tried to push. I mean, obviously she's known she's adopted from day one. She looks different to us. Um, and so so that's a that's a pretty obvious thing. But at the same time, we never sort of pushed that into her or on her. We talked about her adoption from day one, of course, but it was her journey to discover who she was. And I remember the very first time uh, she drew herself in the color brown, you know, which always before that she would draw herself in the same color as Chris and I. And again, we would never correct it. You know, she would show us the picture and we'd be like, oh, this is lovely. Well, you know, it's us as a family, even though I'm thinking like, you don't look like us, you know. But then that first day when she colored herself brown, it was her way of saying, I want to talk about this. You know, can we talk about it? Right. And, and throughout her journey, she's driven her discovery of who she is and and her adoption story and so again like whether she wants to meet her biological parents um that's not something we've ever pushed on her nor is it anything we would ever push on her although she knows that there is the chance to do that and that we'd help her in that and uh, very recently she um out of out of the blue she wrote uh, her christmas list of eight things she wanted for christmas and the fourth one right in the middle was to meet her her biological parents um, and so, but again, that's her way of doing it. It's embedded into other things. It's her pushing the boat out a little bit and seeing how we're going to react. Um, and I've really enjoyed, uh, that part of her and allowing her to drive her story. Yeah. And that's credit to Chris for being the counselor and understanding that that's an important process for her. So oh, it's amazing just hearing the both of you share. I think even for, for myself, you know, I see the three of you on a Sunday, but you know, we, it's hard to know the challenges, the joys that really comes with, you know, being in the nitty gritty of everyday life. Um, so a question, I guess, w for you both is, you know, what ways can the church um, or just, you know, us people of the church, like, how can we be supportive to adoptive parents? Um, like, what, what are some things that would be helpful? What are some things that are just not helpful? That's a great question. Well, I think one thing that Andrew's already um, referred to is language. You know, um, just realizing that families are are made in so many different ways, um, and people without you know they don't consciously not include certain things, but you know we so we so um, tailored to this biological family. You know, mum, dad, and two point five kids, a white right. figure, pets, and a dog. Right. Um, but just in being more inclusive in language, you know, um, recognizing that families are made up through so many different blended ways, not just adoption, but fostering and uh, blended families, different families coming together. And in New Zealand, there's a beautiful word called whanauing, which is when um, family members accept other family members who are from extended uh, families into their immediate family and they see the whanau which is the New Zealand word for family as so big so broad you know so that would be really helpful yeah I, I would say that one of the things that um, can be frustrating is um, that you know I think a lot of people don't know how to kind of interact with a child that's an obvious adoption situation not all of them are of course but if they are a different race to the parents for example that becomes an obvious thing um, and I think a lot of people are kind of like um, they might ask questions that are actually a little bit too intrusive. Um, one example would be um, if somebody came up to Chris and I and said, where's Mia from? I would actually find that a little bit offensive, to be honest with you, because 
Um, that's again, that's her story. That's her story to tell. Um, and so, and I, and I found this that a lot of people want to ask us very direct questions, you know, well, where is her biological family? Do you know who they are? Have you, you know, and it becomes like, hang on a sec. Well, th th this That's is very personal. Yeah. Like in front of Mia, whilst Mia is standing there, um, or even actually if Mia's not there, it's, it, you know, so again, it's about language, but it's also about like, so rather than perhaps asking those direct questions, I think it's absolutely fine to be fascinated about adoption and wanting to ask a family about it. But maybe what you could say is questions more like, um, wow, tell us about the adoption journey, you know, like questions you guys are asking today, like, you know, what's it like to be adoptive parents, you know, rather than the specific questions of where, where is your child from? What, were they born in Hong Kong? Where are their biological parents? You know, those questions, I think, are like, to be honest, not always, you know, um, I wouldn't necessarily ask such direct questions about your kids, for example. So why ask them about mine just because my child looks... So I think it's about um, just having that sensitivity and realizing that every adoptive parent is going to process the adoption with their children in different ways. Mm -hmm. So again, just to start at the higher level when you're trying to engage rather than at the detail level, uh, also honors the parents and allows them to decide how much information to actually share. Because some parents will be like, yeah, I'll tell you everything about my kid. I have no problem. Other parents are like, well, that's their story and they'll, they'll tell it when they're ready. And, so I think to pitch it right, just pitch it at the high level, ask about adoption in general and the adoption experience rather than maybe ask direct questions about the child. That's so helpful. I think especially as we do continue throughout this podcast, um, wanting to understand, you know, what is the role that we all play? Um, and I think that's probably one of the things that we will really uh, uncover is that you know, adoption and fostering is for some of us as Christians and believers, and it's a you know, very genuine expression, but for some of us, it's not. Um, so being aware of some of these areas that we can still uh, we can still play a supportive role in that. I, I think one other thing I'd add too is that I think often people view adoption as like the second choice. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, look at that adoptive family. Oh, I guess they weren't. That's so good of you. Yeah, isn't it so good of them to do that? And and um, you know, oh, they must have had trouble, you know, uh, in childbirth. And also with that, they often assume that it's the it's the woman in the in the relationship who had the problem, when often it's actually the man, like it is in our case. Um, but I think even that just perception of like adoption is the second option, mm -hmm. we need to really do our best in our churches to eradicate that. And I think Chris already spoke to this. And the scripture is so full of adoption language for our relationship with God. And so adoption isn't the second option. Chris and I spoke about adoption before we tried to have our own biological children. It was always on the cards for us. It was always the way God was going to build our family. Mm -hmm. We obviously didn't realize at the time it was going to be the way, um, but it was always going to be a way that we were going to build our family. So um, adoption is the first choice. Um, it's as much a first choice as any anything else. And I think language and theology in the church can really help to set that up. Maybe this is oversimplifying, but... I think that one of the easiest things to remember, perhaps, is to allow the other person to guide the language. So don't assume anything, you know, and open it up and really listen to the language that the adoptive family is using, because that's the way that they're, they're defining themselves, and really respect that and use the language that they're using for themselves and don't assume the language straight away. This conversation is part of our missions pathway on childhood development. You can access this and other sessions on our website, thevine.org.hk missions, as well as other resources which can help equip you to live missionally by connecting your faith with the knowledge to influence systems of injustice and share the gospel.